Welcome to Absolute Destiny, a podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm Chesney. And today we are in like the dead center of the end of the world arc. We have episode 36, Thus Opens the Doorway of Night. Uh, we are into the end of the series at this point. This one feels like the third part of a three-parter. Like it wasn't ever called that. Like this isn't like all the way back at the beginning when like the two-part episodes were named like Prelude and uh whatever the second one was. <laughs> <laughs> I am super sick today when we are recording this. And so I'm gonna be just a little goofy today. <laughs> <laughs> but um anyway. This episode is like the third part of a three-parter that is focused on Utena and Toga. And this whole time, Toga has been kind of like angling to being Utena's prince and also pushing back against Akio. And this is the episode where he finally duels her. Yeah. He had a really good um, double agent moment. In this episode, I mean, I, I honestly didn't know how under Akio's like proverbial spell that Toga was, but he finally got the gumption to try and strike back one last time. So that's the thing, right? Like he does, but he still does it according to Akio's rules. Yeah. Yep. Right? Like, he doesn't strike out against Akio in a way that would actually change things. He's not switching out the game for right. a different game. He is playing the game by the rules that have been established. Like, in challenging Utena to a duel, he's not revolutionizing anything. No. I mean, he didn't even try and challenge Akio directly. <laughs> now I'm picturing him challenging Akio to a duel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would be interesting. I suspect that if he did that, Akio would like push him off the top of the tower at like uh, Jamie Lannister pushes Bran in Game of Thrones in the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> Just like toss him out the room of the, uh, the planetarium. <laughs> Except I feel like it would be Toga in Forever Fall. Or like... <laughs> perpetual like fall to death like you fall to your death and you wake up and you're falling again and then you fall yeah i feel like it would be some bullshit like that and it would just be like a long inner monologue of him falling <laughs> oh no no inner monologue allowed only external you can only hear akio's voice <laughs> <laughs> it's like eternal torment for real <laughs> <laughs> but i i still want to point out though like he pushes back against Akio in terms of how the two of them are seeing Utena. And that was the thing that came out last episode, that Toga can actually recognize that Utena isn't how Akio sees her. Yeah, no, not at all. I think he comments in this episode that um, she's like the perfect princess and calls her, and I mean, like, I, to some extent, she is naive, but, like, it's just, like, molding. She's trying, naive in a himbo way. Yeah, exactly. It's, like, <laughs> trying to mold someone into 
a role that you want them to fit in, like versus seeing them as they are. And of course, like we know that for however many episodes, Akio has been grooming Utena. Exactly. Like it isn't just a matter of him not seeing her the way she sees herself. He has been actively grooming her to be different. And the way he's done it is so much more insidious than the way that, say, Toga was doing it in the first arc of the show. Yeah. It, it makes Toga's efforts back then look hilariously ham-fisted. Yeah, insidious is the perfect description of that, <laughs> of what Akio has done. So the episode opens with kind of a recap of the last episode. Uh, we see again the scene with the coffins and Toga and Sionji talking about how that girl that they saw years and years ago, that was Utena, and it was Akio who saved her that night. And we're reminded of uh, Sionji's line of them still being trapped in their coffins. Like, everyone is still trapped in their coffins. Yeah, also interesting that this episode starts with, I guess it's just Toga's recollection of Utena saying, please don't open this coffin. I just, I find that really interesting because Sionji and Toga's metaphor is like, we're all trapped in our coffins. We have to break the free and revolutionize the world. But what they don't know is that Utena opened the coffin all on her own accord. <laughs> so it's just, again, like Wait, this episode. I don't hmm? think she did. I think, I, I thought it was Toga who pushed it open. No, sorry. I mean, like her eventually leaving the coffin in the church. Oh, oh, like, oh, okay. Of her own accord. Yeah, because like <clears throat> he pushed it open. Yes. And, found her in, and they found her in there. And then Akio showed up and showed her like Akio as the prince back in the day showed her Anthe. Yeah. Which they, you know, interpret as something eternal. Mm hmm. Um, which kind of technically it is in that it's like Anthe's eternal punishment for kidnapping the prince. <laughs> right. Um, but like, I think like the, the comment that he makes about still being trapped in their coffins is one of those rare recognitions of how stunted everyone's growth has been for the last few years. Yeah, for sure. And at least, again, at least Toga and Sionji are trying to do something about it. But I mean, like we've said, they're just still going about it the wrong way. <laughs> so then we get the title card and... We see another recap, this time of the horse riding with Utena and Akio. Which is a metaphor for sex. <laughs> it might just be literal. Like, it feels good once you're used to it. Come on. <laughs> oh, that, like, yeah, no, I, the conversation, yes. I just mean <laughs> in the, the fade, you know, who knows? And then we have the conversation between Akio and Toga with their shirts open. <laughs> uh. And that shot, man. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know if I have anything like actually intelligent to say about it because like, 
like I said, I am sick and rocking like the cold medicine while I'm recording tonight. And man, that shot, I <laughs> it just kind of breaks my brain sometimes. <laughs> it's funny because it's like locker room talk, but they, I mean, it's like implied that they just got finished having sex, but it's just funny kind of question mark <laughs> that they're talking about Utana like right after having sex i mean like i don't know i guess <sighs> if you want to get big brain about it it's like oh akio like you know hurting in any way that he can you know whether you want to look at it in the lens of like uh them like being a pair and or like he knows maybe that Toga's got a crush on Utena and is like driving that knife in deeper. <laughs> if like Toga wasn't still pining for Utena, like if they yeah. were trading notes about her as a, a shared partner, that would be one thing. <laughs> right. But yeah. And then we cut to the fencing club. Mickey and Jury are having a conversation about Utena and they're just kind of secretly watching her and talking about how, like, she seems like a girl now. Pretty much ever since she has fallen for Akio, she doesn't seem like herself. She seems like a girl. I would say, like, even more so than that brief stint back in episode uh, 11, where she is, like, she has lost to Toga and shows up in a girl's uniform. Like, mm -hmm. this, this is going to sound weird. They're pointing out how it seems almost like she is emasculated. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say even, probably more so than feminized, just because of the, the way that she normally carries herself. Man, I feel like completely out of pocket on some of my takes tonight already. <laughs> oh, go for it. I'm here for this. <laughs> and Mickey has the temerity to ask... Well, isn't that a good thing? <laughs> and jury calls him out on that. She's not having that. She's not there <laughs> for that argument. Um, but the conversation shifts to them talking about how this seems to signify that there's a revolution underway. That something is changing. That everything is changing in the school. And jury confesses to having a vague, awful feeling about it all. Mm-hmm. We cut to not a car scene, a motorcycle scene where Toga is driving a motorcycle and Sionji is literally in the sidecar. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best thing ever. <laughs> like, if you needed a visual representation of these two and their relationship, <laughs> here it is. <laughs> <laughs> it was very much... Batman and Robin, which is even funnier considering that they're Robin's <laughs> colors. <laughs> actually, they're just Robin and Robin. They're just like Nightwing and Robin, actually. <laughs> uh, Dick Grayson and... Uh... Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Damian Wayne. Yeah. Yeah. Dick Grayson and Jason Todd. That's who these two are. <laughs> Um, my favorite part of this scene is 
Toga going, <laughs> Toga trying to emulate Akio and going, doesn't the throb of the engine feel good? And Sayonji goes, no, it's weird. <laughs> and then we get a uh, introspective cut into Sayonji, which I find hilarious, where he says, I don't like anyone else being in control. And he says something about his body and his heart. And I was like, oh, okay. Speak on it, Capricorn. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, we've talked about this. I can't remember his fucking sign, but I'm gonna look it up. Oh, shit, he's a Leo. (laughs) Actually, he's a Virgo. Yeah. He's a a Leo Virgo cusp. Damn. As a Virgo, we do not claim him. (laughs) 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 He has a Gemini ascendant, LMAO. (laughs) It fits. It does. (laughs) but yeah like he's talking about how like oh you just don't like it that i'm in control huh (laughs) (laughs) and uh he said uh toga says you don't like it because i'm driving huh and sayonji's like i just don't like not being in control yeah and i mean points for understanding that about yourself (laughs) (laughs) here's the thing Sionji calls out Toga. Yeah. And and says, if you're gonna go and duel Utana, you're just doing what the end of the world wants you to do. Like, even if doing this means say, like sparing her the, the final duel or whatever, even if it means winning her, he's still doing it by the end of the world's terms. Sionji has like that galaxy brain moment of, hey, if you do this, you're still playing within the system. You're not changing the system. You know, the whole you can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. And it's just a temporary solution. You know, even if Utena agrees to never duel again, what makes you think some other fucker isn't going to come along and try to do the same shit again? Right. There's nothing revolutionary about winning this way. No. Also, interesting thing from this conversation is, again, the talk about the coffins, uh, but specifically... Specifically the T-pose? No! (laughs) No, I was... (laughs) No, I was saying that... My model got stuck in that scene, and he's just T-posing through the rest of the scene. I would pay good money to see that. <laughs> um, just shit post Utena. <laughs> um, no, but now I just want now I just want somebody to like make memes of Sionji randomly t posing in the background of other scenes. <laughs> I was thinking the whole of the show, but it's just like it's just like if it never got past storyboarding. <laughs> Uh, no, no, no. If only Sionji's character didn't make it past that stage. Like, yes. <laughs> everyone else is animated. Sionji, in all his scenes for the entire show, is just a T pose. <laughs> oh my God. No, but what I was saying was uh, we get another talk about the coffins here, but specifically, they say the coffins that the end of the world has prepared for us. So they're even acknowledging that like th- 
this whole thing is set up. It's not just like, oh, I had like these circumstances from my childhood, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, this whole thing is orchestrated from the beginning. Yeah. And I think it's also very telling here that when you're enmeshed in a system like this, and like in the show, this system is a metaphor for a society at large. You you can't always, you can't escape it, right? Like on some level, Sayonji calling out Toga feels very much like that peasant meme of like, um, you know, like there's problems with society and then like the guy popping over the well, aha, but you live in society (laughs) (laughs) where it isn't necessarily the fault of any one person for not knowing how to dismantle an entire system. And the onus should never really be on one person to be responsible for dismantling the entire system that they are themselves both dependent upon and enmeshed in. Yeah. So like, as much as I bust on him for it, <laughs> I nobody else in the show makes it to the point of dismantling the system either. Even Utna, in the way that she's fighting against it all, is still doing it by the rules of the system. She She's protecting Anthe by having won her through the duels. Yeah. And so I can't be too hard on Toga here because he's just not getting it. And because also, there's still Almost children. no one ever does. Yeah. Like, but like, almost no one ever does. It takes a lot of time and effort and thought and reflection and in a lot of cases, a lot of education to help people get past seeing things through the lens of just like their received messages of society. Like it takes a lot of mental effort to take a step back and see the system as a system. Like imagine being in an argument with a friend or a partner or a roommate. And while you're in the argument, being able to step back and recognize like what the dynamic in play is like how this argument reflects the last time you had that argument and the time before that. And that by participating in it, you are also like by believing that you are right and that your point is the only correct one. You are equally participating in the fight. Yeah. And like being able to step back and recognize like the role you're playing in that system. That's fucking hard. Yeah. Right. Like therapists have to train for quite a while to do group sessions where you learn how to do that. And it's still hard to do it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so like, I have a hard time faulting him for not seeing what we see as the audience in terms of like a potential obvious right answer to all of this. Yeah. Like I don't fault him for not seeing like, Oh, just transfer to a different school as like the solution, you know, or report Akio to the police or, yeah, you know, like any, any of these other things, like I have a hard time faulting him for not being able to like step out of it mm-hmm. and recognize the role that he's playing in this and what it would actually take to change things. Because 
that puts too much pressure on one person to get it all right when no one in the show does. Right. Yeah, and nobody in the show has, I don't want to say the privilege, but kind of, of having an outside perspective. I mean, not even Utena with Wakaba, because she's still influenced by the environment that they're in. So Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, can't really blame somebody for not having the resources in place that they need to, you know? That's not their fault. We know that whatever else has happened, um, he was adopted. He has a very uncomfortable relationship with his own father. And so not being able to recognize at age 17 that the father figure that you have attached yourself to is a predator and a problem, I have a hard time like being too harsh on him about it, right? That doesn't... It's not an excuse for like his actual actions toward the other characters, especially in the first arc of the show. Um, and like, it is a really mixed bag there with how in the third arc of the show, he transitions from being student council president to like handmaid of doom <laughs> <laughs> for, for the other characters, like delivering them to Akio. Uh. I'm sorry. Handmaid of Doom is the Halloween costume I want to go as. Anyway. But yeah, right? Like, I will at least give him proper credit for trying. Yeah. He, so far, he is now the only other character to be trying to beat the system. Even though he's not clever enough to do it. He at least knows that, like, Akio's a problem, and Akio is actively dangerous to Utena and wants yeah. to protect Utena. The same way that Utena wants to protect Anthe. Yeah. That is my, like, long way to go to explain a tweet that I made, like, a month ago now, saying, this block of episodes has made me rethink my position on Utena and Toga shippers. Mm. Like I don't, I don't actively hate the ship anymore. Yeah, I, it's I not, agree. It's not my, it's not my bag. I just don't actively hate it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was pretty staunchly opposed to it in the first arc, and after this episode, I was like, I'm kind of sad that it doesn't work out. Sorry, shippers, but like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like I I get it now. But we really needed this arc to come full circle with and all this time to be able to come full circle with him. Also, it turns it into like a boring run of the mill straight ship and I'm not here for that. So Yeah, yeah, same. <laughs> so like so there's that. Like <laughs> But like I I at least can see what they're seeing. Yeah. Doesn't mean same. I like it. Like, I'm not going to go checking out AO3 for it, but, like, (laughs) I suppose we can coexist in the fandom now, and I won't hate you for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because the scene later on between them was actually really sweet and heartfelt, and he was genuine in his statements and actions. Even, and I get, 
Utena's uh, hesitation and mistrust because of their history. Um, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, totally fair. Um, but I found it endearing how much he was genuinely trying to reach out and reach her with his feelings. Yeah. Uh, and this is this is also where, like, I think if Toga... I think I've said this before. Like, if Toga ever got the talk about why consent matters and what consent means and, you know, like, what affirmative consent actually is, I think he'd get it. Yeah. Akio absolutely would not get it. <laughs> now I want to make a TikTok about this. <laughs> but which, of, which of these Utena characters understands consent? <laughs> But I, I would also say that, and this is probably my most controversial opinion, I think Utna and Toga have a better chance of being in a healthy relationship than Utna and Anthe. And I'm going to be very specific about why I say that. Anthe, for all her trauma and for all of her, the, like the ways in which she strategically doesn't communicate leaves Utina in a position of projecting onto her, her desires. And that is going to be a toxic dynamic that lets Utina remain as a permanent savior and Anthe remain as a permanent victim until the resentment builds between the two of them that it all melts down. Not only is Anthe, let me start that over. Not only does Anthe not communicate, um, she also manipulates instead. Like this whole show. Yeah. This whole time <laughs> she's been manipulating in some way, shape, or form. And On the other hand, Toga and Utana are always in conflict in a way that they I think they will reach a point of mutual respect. Mm -hmm. And understanding that without therapy and healing, she and Anthe won't have. There will be compassion and love and care, but I don't see, I don't see the actual respect for one another. And Toga and Utena could actually like resolve conflict together. <laughs> yeah, they would be able to spontaneously arrive at that. Yeah, in a way that I think Anthe and Utena would need like a third party to mediate. Yeah. Um, Anthe has a lot of healing to do before. I think she would be healthy in a relationship. Um, Agreed. And has got her like abandonment stuff with her family. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, the, like, the way, the way Utina copes, the way Utina copes is by being a savior and Anthe will give her that. And neither of them will heal. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that is my like spiciest and hottest of hot takes. It's not even that um, spicy. <laughs> oh god. No, in this fandom, in this fandom I have just dropped a nuclear bomb. <laughs> well, and I just wholeheartedly agreed <laughs> with it. <laughs> Those two bombs. That yeah, that no, that's the two man rule for launching a nuke right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I put in the codes, you confirm the codes, the nuke has been launched. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, oh my God. No, I, I, here's the thing. This only applies to the show. Oh yeah. I I can't speak for the manga or the movie. Yeah. In the movie and the movie manga, Anthe and Utena will be fine. Oh, okay. Like they're in different places as characters in those two works. In the show, Anthe just has a lot to work out yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, they like Utena and Anthe will be a beautiful couple if they meet again in college. Yeah. They can't just like go off together right now. Um the other thing too is like there is a sizable part of this fandom that really comes down hard on Utena being a lesbian and that all of the relationships with men are um are compat. Oh, compulsory, right. Compulsory heterosexuality. And if that's your read, the take that we just spouted off, yeah, no, like there's no way you're going to have any truck with that. And I, I understand it. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and I get that because I also get the lack of representation of lesbian characters in media. Yeah. And the thing is, like, there's also a lack of representation of bi characters in media. And it uh-huh. sucks that we're at the same table fighting over the same scraps. Yeah. Like, to, to take my example from earlier, to zoom out and recognize we are both being deprived of representation in media. And that is neither of our faults. Nope. I don't mean, like, Chesney and I. I mean, like us and whatever side you think you're on when you're listening to this like it's none of our faults that we are being left to fight over the scraps and i don't want to be fighting with anyone about it either so i want to say like if your read is that the relationships with all the men in the show are compat that's cool i am totally fine with that read yeah yeah (laughs) i mean my take on any media is that there are always going to be multiple interpretations and any or all of those could be right that's just me personally so when you're like yeah there are takes that uten is bi or takes that uten is a lesbian and all these experiences are just compet i'm like yeah i could see it either way honestly i could because like this show feels really genuine yeah to women who went through the experience of dating men because it was expecting of, expected of them. And so like this resonates on that level that feels incredibly deeply personal. Yeah. And I have spoken to those fans and I have heard that experience and I, I get it. And I think Ikuhara leaves it that way intentionally with Ikuhara is working out a lot of his own shit while writing this. Like, <laughs> like this isn't this isn't even like a clear, direct, intended take on his part. <laughs> yeah. But I think from a lot of the discussions that we've had with the products that he creates, the media and such, that he intentionally wants people to theorize and create and speculate <clears throat> and all this stuff. He wants that conversation that dialogue to keep going is just the impression that I get from the things that we've talked about with the show, what he said, the different interviews, stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I'm like, yeah, all of this is valid. I love hearing all of it. (laughs) 
I look forward to just absolutely getting roasted by by emails. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. Like, like if you really hate my take on all of this, I really want to hear about it. I want (laughs) to read it out on I want to read it out on the show. We'll have a hate mail back episode. No, no, we won't. I'm not doing that. <laughs> Absolutely not. We'll have a hate mail episode where we read <laughs> where we read hate mail. And we roast the shit out of it. No, 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 no. Like mm-hmm. I don't. When I say I want to read it, I, I don't. I'm not. I'm saying I don't want to like criticize people for having a different take. Like I want to sincerely give voice to that. So, like, if you have a different take on it, I would love to hear it. Um, especially, yeah. like, especially if you are somebody who's coming from a place of saying that the relationships with the men in the show are entirely compat. Like, if that's your experience and that's your understanding of it, I, I want to hear that and be able to give voice to that. So, if you if that's your take, please write in. Oh yeah, I'm just saying I'm not going to entertain Chesney and Autumn are stupid hate mail. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If, <laughs> yeah, if you're just gonna like genuine hate mail, nah. Yeah, <laughs> which we've never gotten. Thank God, you all are great. Yes, yeah. So, anyway, we have a like <laughs> a show to talk about. Um, <laughs> so we cut to uh, Choo Choo asleep, and he is blowing a snot bubble, and it bursts all over his face. And Utana wakes up, and she so sweetly cleans him up while he's still asleep. But she looks at him and says, are you always alone when she visits her brother? And we get we get it later with her going upstairs to check. She seems almost like she's about to mm-hmm. when Toga shows up and says he has urgent business. And she was not going to go with him until he said that it was about the end of the world. Yeah. And they go to the dueling arena together and they ride the elevator and it is dead silent aside from the sound of the elevator and them talking. It is eerie the same way it was when Sionji had kidnapped Anthe and she had to climb the tower with the door already open and all of that. Um, And they have this conversation where Toga is really laying it on thick like he is really flirting with her mm-hmm. like he he suggests that the ride up the tower is romantic and he says that he enjoys riding up to heaven with her yeah <laughs> <laughs> and she's like dude come on <laughs> she, she goes don't stand so close <laughs> yeah <laughs> and when they get up there even though she has dueled everyone else on the show at this point, the thought that comes to mind is that this is the place where she dueled him. And she comments on the number of stars that they can see. And while she's gazing up at the stars, the castle appears. And there is just like a gorgeous aurora that the two of them just for a minute just sit and watch. They just stand there watching the sky together. I I kind of have to wonder if any of this was orchestrated, but at the same time, I don't know who it would be. Like who would orchestrate it unless 
but I don't think that it would be Dios. But we've never seen the castle appear outside of a duel like this until now. And there's been at least one other time where they've come up to the dueling arena and it wasn't a duel. Right. But like the... But that one was still a fight. It just wasn't like a a duel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I... I don't know that magical realism is just in full swing. So I'm like, I don't even know if this is like somebody manipulating this anymore or if it's just like full on, it's just the magic of the world. (laughs) I think that, I think it's reasonable to assume that anytime the castle appears, it is by somebody's will. Hmm. Right? Like, I I don't think this is just something that randomly would happen. I think we're too deep into this to entertain the idea that this isn't somebody if not planning it at least taking advantage of a moment that has appeared because like i don't think that at this point in the all of this like i don't think toga is doing this because he got a letter from the end of the world at this point akio didn't tell him to seduce utana this is him finally doing something for himself and yet the castle appearing i think you're onto something here. Like, I think the castle appearing is likely somebody taking advantage of what is happening. I just don't understand why. Like, to what end? Yeah. Like, to what, what does someone gain by encouraging this relationship along? You know? Like, clearly it's not Akio. Well, Utana gets tested one more time in the dueling arena. Oh, so maybe it could be pushing and, along to the test. And also, <laughs> like, if it throws Utana off her game, this is what knocked her out last time that she dueled Toga, right? Like, the confused feelings is what threw her off last time. Yeah. <clears throat> That's a good point. And so, like, both narratively and in-universe, facing Toga again near now the end of the series brings us full circle to the last time they stepped up into this arena he won and then she had to beat him back and now they're having a rematch (coughs) and it's going to be an opportunity to show whether she can maintain her focus despite him laying it on even more okay because like now he's got genuine feelings he's not just trying to manipulate her in order to get the Rose Bride. Right. He's actually falling for her. And I think the difference in his sincerity matters. You know, if we hadn't had the ending to this episode that we did, I would have said maybe that it was Anthe testing her by kind of putting this into play. Yeah. But uh, I feel like I'm just going to scratch that one off the board. <laughs> but yeah they have a really romantic moment together um it's it's (laughs) one-sided god bless it is one-sided um because again as much as he is laying it on utan is like just get to the point (laughs) (laughs) and he does he asks her are you in love with the chairman yeah which like Holy shit. That line reminds me so much of 
uh, the movie Things to Do in Denver when you're dead because Andy Garcia's character, Jimmy the Saint, that's his pickup line. Are you in love? Because like his whole deal is if you're not in love, I'm going to keep hitting on you. If you are, I'm going to go off and and go about my business elsewhere. (laughs) Dead. (laughs) And so Toga tries that line here and asks like, are you in love with the chairman? And she can't really answer him. Yeah. Um, she makes the excuse that he's engaged. And that because of, like, the implication being because of that, I can't be in love with him. He's taken. Never mind that that isn't stopping him. Right. And so Toga proposes that he become Utena's prince. And this is where the show really deconstructs, like, the whole prince and princess narrative like it's showing us another example of how tempting this simple story is Mm -hmm. but we know now too much from everything that has happened until this point to think that like the two of them could actually like and i say this having said everything i said earlier we know too much to know that these two could ever just like ride off into the sunset together and we would consider that a satisfying ending. Like the caveat that I had earlier was, yeah, the two of them are going to have to fight a whole lot to come to a place of mutual respect. <laughs> <laughs> like we can't just see them right off together right now. Like she can't say yes and have that be a satisfying ending. Right. It would certainly not be. Even though this is a hell of a love confession. I'll just say that (laughs) it is like somebody good God. And I know they're only 17 or 16 or whatever, but somebody coming up to you and saying you're everything for me. Good Lord. That's a hell of a confession. That's laying it on a bit thick. Also, (laughs) it's interesting that as a confession, Utena also doesn't just immediately say no. Or yeah. More, or more specifically, I'm sorry, because like that would be the appropriate response to to somebody saying this, um, like in Japan, and just yeah. basically saying like, sorry, not interested, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she no, takes it seriously. Yeah, when he says, "Can I be your prince?" he uses the personal pronoun "ore," which is a masculine, more adult. Um, there's like a an implication of superiority or, or um, I don't want to say haughtiness. Like he has sh- like he's old enough that he has shifted from using Boku to Ore, and he's old enough that it doesn't seem like he's putting on airs by saying it that way. What I noticed, like I picked up on this, and then like as soon as I heard it. I had to think back and then because I couldn't pick out any, I had to go back and rewatch a bunch of episodes. <laughs> like <laughs> I Chesney was infinitely patient with me as I skimmed through a dozen episodes trying to find dialogue with Toga in which he uses a personal pronoun. Toga Toga's speech pattern is very different from everyone else in that he leans into um 
it's a thing that you can do when speaking in Japanese of just dropping the subject of a sentence entirely. Uh, when like the subject is implied or the subject has been identified by the other speaker already. Toga is almost always talking about other people. I mean, this is a pattern I just noticed by skimming through almost all of his dialogue. He is almost always talking about other people. Um, he is almost always talking about the other person he is talking to. Or when he has to talk about anything, he pluralizes and says, we. He almost never uses a personal pronoun to identify just himself. The one example I could find is another time where he uses ore. And this was during his birthday party in the episode with Nanami and the cat and all of that. So at his birthday party, at one point, he refers to himself by ore, which might be the age where he finally decided to start going by ore instead of boku. Uh, not to go like all the way down the rabbit hole on Japanese pronouns, I just found it really interesting that like in listening to the dialogue and hearing him refer to himself as ore, I was like, I don't remember him using a personal pronoun before. Like it's it it, that, that's how heavily it jumped out at me that he used that one because like I almost never hear it in his speech. Um, it might be more common in like the third section of the show when he's got like more of those scenes in the back seat with the other characters. Um, but no, like for the first half of the show, he's always talking about other people or collectively saying we. And I think that also is part of like the weight given to this moment that isn't necessarily clear in the translation. That for once, he's not talking about Utena. He's not talking about the student council. He's not talking about Akio and Akio's desires. For once, he is talking about himself and himself alone. Nor is he making like some grand proclamation about everybody or the state of the world, which is the other thing that he does a lot. For once, we're getting him speaking directly to another character about himself, with himself as the subject of the sentence. Yeah. I don't think I would have picked up on that pattern unless I like went back and did that like heavy duty skimming. Um so it's also interesting, right? Because the show so far has painted him as this like very self-interested character. And yet at the same time, he doesn't talk about himself a lot. Well, I think that speaks Just to the interesting. narcissism, right? Like, I, I think that speaks to the narcissism that like, he doesn't have to talk about himself directly. He talks about himself collectively. We have to do this. Like as a student council, we have to do this. Um, or he's the devil on the shoulder tempting people. Yeah, okay. I could see that. It's just, you would think with him being portrayed as like this selfish kind of character, especially in love, that he would say state his own desires more. Just very interesting. I think they... I think that comes out in his actions until now. Um, this is the first hint we get of his like interiority. And I think that's like why it jumped out at me hearing yeah. him say that this time. 
is like <clears throat> almost never having heard him refer to himself individually before. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think that like also speaks to his attitude that like in all the other times where he'd be referring to himself and he just drops the subject of the sentence as if obviously we're talking about me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like it's a grammatical thing that doesn't carry in the translation because we don't have that grammatical construction in English. You can't have like, that would just be a sentence fragment in English and it would sound funny. So no translator is going to be just writing a sentence fragment word for word and leaving it at that, you know? Yeah. So he says up there when they're on the dueling platform that even if he can't be worthy of her, he just wants to be there in the moment. Just have that moment. And like, he says, if I can just engrave this feeling of being with you tonight into my heart. And she agrees. So they basically just spend the night up there stargazing. And it's, I mean, I certainly didn't get any kind of bad vibe from it. It just felt very innocent. I think um, her agreeing is probably one of those examples of like the comp hat piece. Like what would have happened if she said no? Right. right? Like uh, it, it can, I can see the argument there of her not feeling entirely free to say no in that moment. Yeah, I could do. Um, but I think it's hard to disentangle that, right? Like, she may have wanted to stay there. We don't get, like, a really good, clear image on that. I lean toward her not feeling safe saying no, though. Just my gut. Yeah, it is really tangled. Because even when she's back in her room watching the sunrise in the morning, she reflects back on she wondered if he was her prince the first time she met him. So I I agree that it's just very, I think it was just very complicated for her. And that's why she didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that also is very true and real to um, to youth, right? Like, yeah, you don't always know how to get out of situations or... Sometimes you don't always know if you want to get out of a situation. Right. Like it may, it, like it, things can feel clearer in retrospect than they were in the moment. Yep. And that's always a, a hard situation to deal with. Um, we cut to Sayonji and Toga in the student council chamber and they're having a conversation. And this time, <clears throat> the, uh, this time the image is a uh, vase of roses. And the rose colors keep changing. And every time one of them makes a statement or makes a point, it is punctuated by a gunshot shooting one of the rose blooms off the roses until it gets down to only the white rose of the prince left in the rose uh, vase. And they're basically establishing that, yeah, he's going to challenge her to a duel again. And this is going to be it. There is... A moment in the next scene <coughs> that's really fascinating because I don't know what it is, why Utena will not be honest with Anthe about these things. Anthe asked where Utena was when she was out with Toga, and Utena lies. 
<laughs> Why did she do that? <laughs> she could have said, oh, yeah, uh, Toga wanted to speak to me, and I we ended up staying out all night. Like, I get it's against... Oh, no, it's not, actually. It's not against school rules because they're duelists. They don't have a curfew like the other students, which is so funny to me. Um, but, yeah, interesting that she felt the need to lie. I mean, we we know why. I do think it's multifaceted. Say more. I think it's multifaceted in that... Like, there are feelings for Anthe that Utena's not acknowledging. And it's that, like... <laughs> If you were out late with somebody else and your crush asks you, oh, where were you last night? You're not going to fucking tell him you were out. (laughs) I think there's also some degree of, uh, Anthe doesn't tell Utena where she is. Yeah, there's that. Like, she's not being honest with Utena about what goes on when she's with her brother. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, she kind of set the tone for the relationship there. Um, I do also think that some of the discomfort plays into it, like not knowing whether it was, quote unquote, right or wrong for her to have done that, not really knowing how to decipher her feelings around it. Um, Sure. So yeah, that's why I'm like, it's definitely multifaceted, but everything is at play here. It's just interesting that she lied. (laughs) I do want to elaborate on my point about, like, Anthe not telling the truth to Utena. I get why Anthe isn't being honest with Utena about what happens with Akio. So, like, I, I do get that. It's not necessary to go into, like, lurid detail about it all. But, like, if you're going through something, concealing that from your partner isn't healthy either. Uh, funnily enough, uh... <laughs> In this scene, the next thing that happens is Choo Choo is digging shit up and finds a worm and starts fighting it. Yeah. (laughs) And again, if we're looking at Choo Choo through the lens of Choo Choo as a representation of Anthe's inner thoughts and feelings, she's ready for a fight? (laughs) (laughs) I Again, just think it's funny that Anthe's like, oh, where were you, Utena? Oh, nowhere. Anthe, bitch, I'm about to fight you. (laughs) (laughs) So, but yeah, right after this, we have Toga challenging Utena to a duel, unsurprisingly. Um, Sionji and Anthe are just like chilling, like laying together in the grass, like they're best pals. Or just friendly <laughs> in general, um, which is funny thinking about where their relationship started. <laughs> um, Turns out they've kept the secret diary going back and forth this entire time. <laughs> I think it's just more of a reflection on <sighs> Anthea as the Rose Bride is just kind of like, whatever. I'm just here to do whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, so challenges to her challenges her to a duel uh, and says, if you win, the student council will not fight you for her ever again. But if I win, you become my woman. And Utena goes, I really misjudged you. I never thought you would say something like that to me. So, Which, 
Fair, because that's really possessive. (laughs) Well, it doesn't read quite that way in the original Japanese. (laughs) It really is more just like, you become my girlfriend. Okay, okay. (laughs) Thank God. uh, The implication isn't, you become my woman. Like, no, it's not that. (laughs) I was like, damn, okay, Fred Flintstone, calm down. (laughs) Yeah, Toga's not out here calling women females. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. So then we get the Shadow Girls, and they are engaged in a debate about which one of them is the real prince of the white horse, which at this point, like, isn't terribly uh, enlightening, because we know (laughs) that we know that this is about Akio and uh, Toga fighting over which one of them is the real prince. Of course, like, we know that Akio is the prince in all of this. He is Mm -hmm. the one who appeared to Utena. He is, in theory, Utena's prince. But we also know from the last few episodes that that Akio is not this Akio. He has changed so much as a person in that intervening time that he has to re-become Utena's prince and he can only do it in these like fake overly princely gestures like there is no amount of sincerity in it anymore for him and this contrasts with Toga who is not the prince but his gestures are sincere and so like we have this dichotomy of these two characters and how they are approaching this this question of princeliness. Even though, like, we as an audience are like, this entire system is flawed and is a problem, and you all need to stop. <laughs> yeah. Also, neither one have fully won over Utena. Like, Toga very clearly didn't. And Akio did with his gestures in the beginning, but sometime after uh, the essay scene... It just stopped having that princely feeling for Utena. Can't imagine why. Yeah. Yeah. And (coughs) so then we get the duel. And it opens with Sionji and Toga looking absolutely fabulous. (laughs) Like, it's hard to argue either one is the prince. They are both princesses here. Truly. Um. Sionji draws the sword from Toga. Interestingly enough, like the animation shot here is entirely redrawn for those two characters. In the past, like it was just recolors of the hair and a little bit of line work around the uniform. Um, this time we actually get like a fully redrawn scene of um, Sionji drawing the sword from Toga. Uh, the duel has like a lot going on visually. Like they do a letterbox shot with rose petals in in the panels. Uh, there's shots entirely in silhouette. It's a, a really like well done and well choreographed fight scene. At one point, um, at one point, Toga catches her hand and pulls her in close, like they're dancing rather than fighting. And mm-hmm. both of them have their swords away from one another. So, like, he could kiss her if he wanted to, and vice versa. They're not going 
for a winning strike in this moment. He is in control. She is completely off guard and he doesn't go for the winning strike. He is looking to seduce her. That's the victory he's looking for here. Yeah. He wants her to pull a jury from like seven episodes ago and take the rose off herself. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to emphasize this, all the cars are now lined up around the arena and all their headlights are on them. As in all eyes are on this moment to see what is going to happen. What is she going to choose? She chooses to fight and the cars all start speeding at them at full speed. <laughs> and the entire duel ends up becoming a game of Frogger. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so then Anthe calls out and catches her and they do like the empowering the sword thing between the two of them now, um, which is like that new upgrade trick that she learned 13 or 14 episodes ago. But while this is happening, we get a flashback to the elevator ride up to the arena. And we see that in this elevator ride, it wasn't a silent conversation while Zetai Ume Mokushiroku plays. The two of them were talking during that elevator ride. And Utena promised to always protect Anthe. And then Anthe said something like, oh, really? And Utena goes, you don't believe me? And that's that's all we got. <laughs> that's all we got out of that elevator scene. <laughs> and we get this like beautifully ridiculous shot of the cars speeding toward Utena and she's parting them like a river. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like she's deflecting the cars like water. <laughs> <laughs> and Sayonji is driving the bike so that Toga can take this like baseball swing with his sword. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it has like a, a chariot and a swordsman feel to it. But <laughs> it's so ridiculous that like the way that this shot is blocked of <laughs> Toga holding his sword, like he's gonna like, like it's a baseball swing. He's gonna take a baseball swing at Utena from the back of a, uh, a moving vehicle. But of course, Utena wins. Cars crash, noise, pain, blah, blah, blah. And Toga admits, this is it. Now you're the one who is going to revolutionize the world. But don't let your guard down around the end of the world. This is the last thing I can tell you. This is the last advice I can give you. Like, on the one level, it has that feel of you can date anyone, just not that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but also, she is sincerely in danger. Yeah. And he is trying to actually protect her. But we all know that when you're in an abusive or controlling relationship, other people from the outside can't just like tell you it's a problem. You have to come to that realization yourself. And so yeah. while it's understandable why he's trying to tell her this... It's not going to work. He doesn't just say, like, don't let your guard down around the end of the world. He says, or the Rose Bride. So, like, of course, Utena is not going to hear it because she's just protected. Because she's just sworn 
15 minutes ago in the elevator to always protect Anthe, the Rose Bride. She's not in the place to hear this at all. And she responds with, you just don't give up. Goodbye forever. (laughs) Well, she uses sayonara, which is not goodbye forever, but it's like, farewell. Yeah. Final part of the episode. Utena's in bed staring at the ceiling and is talking to Anthe and says, it must be nice that no one's after you now. And Anthe's response isn't like, enthusiastically affirmative (laughs) right uh it leaves a lot there that like sure the duels might like the duels might be over but the system hasn't changed she's still property Mm -hmm. just because no one's fighting over her doesn't mean she isn't property under the system that is in place at this school yeah there's this long long ass pause after she just says yes like she normally would like anthe do you want a tuna sandwich yes like (laughs) (laughs) just this long uncomfortable pause and then when she looks back at utana i can't even really describe the look on her face but utana's fallen asleep and calls out Akio's name. And we get a flash of Anthe being held up by all those swords, piercing her body. And the next thing that we get after that is Utena waking up, <clears throat> realizing Anthe's gone, going to see where she is, going into the planetarium, calling out Anthe's name, going there she is, and sees Anthe naked. Has her Nanami moment. Uh, Not only is she just naked and standing in front of Akio, Anthe looks up at her. Yeah, they make eye contact. Uh Uh-huh. And (sighs) here again, I cannot really describe the emotion that's on Anthe's face. It's cold, uninterested, a little bit of disgust towards her, uh, but almost... Like, no real recognition. Definitely not shock. Definitely not, oh, you caught us. (laughs) Uh, I would say that this is actually a a direct mirror of the Nanami scene of, like, you wanted the truth. Well, this is the truth. You know, like, like, this is her finally showing Utena what her real life is. (laughs) Yeah, and why the line of isn't it great nobody's after you is such bullshit because the call's been coming from inside the house this whole time (laughs) and utana just never realized it yeah in fact kind of fell for the same hook line and sinker yeah and this is another part of why i was i've always said nanami is a parallel protagonist Now we have the A plot catching up to Nanami's B plot, where now Utena is on the same page as Nanami about what is going on with Akio and Anthe. And now in the next episode, we're going to get to see how her response to it is different, meaningfully different from Nanami's response to it. This is something that can no longer be kept hidden. It is what it is and has to be dealt with. 
So on that note, what's your prediction for next time? Man, the preview? Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony just kind of being a little business as usual in the beginning and being like, oh, we got a letter from the end of the world. And Utana's like, Anthony, what have you done? I, I can't forgive you. And she just goes, Utana, don't you know how much I've always despised you? Like, ah! <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Pain. Yeah. Pain. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I, ah, as much as I was like h- hating for this moment to happen, I cannot wait to see any kind of dialogue that happens after this between them. Because out of all of the outcomes, I seriously did not think that she would tell Utena that she despised her. Because there's been moments in this series, right? Where it's almost like Anthe has these moments of clarity with Utena. And she, like, oh my God, the whole part leading up to this has been Anthe wanting to tell Utena something, to come clean, tell her the truth about something. And she's held herself back. So I'm like, do you really despise her? I I don't know. On some level, maybe. Sure. I don't know. Like, does she despise her on some level? Maybe a little bit? I, maybe. Because of the nature of her position as the Rose Bride. But how would Utena have ever known that? Because all she's ever acted is like this extremely compliant, I have no say in anything because this is my role. And I don't want anything else for myself. So sure. I... I'm like, this is just going to be really interesting to untangle. (laughs) I have (laughs) no predictions for next time because this just took all of my eggs in the basket and flipped them. (laughs) All of my eggs are cracked and on the ground. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's what this show does to you, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We have several emails, the first of which the subject is, I'm calling you out for a duel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This one comes from Elle. Uh, Elle says, hello, I love your podcast, but I'm absolutely gutted to realize I think I'm like Shiori from listening to your analysis of her. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Please keep it up. I really do love this podcast, despite its unfortunate insightfulness. L, I'm sorry you realized that about yourself. Hopefully you can grow to be less of uh I don't know, garbage fire. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say it like that. Uh hopefully you grow to become less of a Shiori as she's seen in the show and more of a healthy uh Shiori who has grown past the the trauma and the um uh, the terror of being a student at a Tory Academy. <laughs> yeah. So the next one comes from Ashley, who has written in before. Hello again, Ashley. Uh, this time Ashley is writing to talk about the Casanova Fishermen. Um, Ashley says, I'm quickly writing this while listening to your episode, The Love That Grew in Wintertime. 
To me, this is one of the most straightforward Shadow Girl segments, and the way they do the same joke in English dub uh, is the best localization in the entire series, in my opinion. Cool. Good to know. I will try to include that the next time we do like a dub versus sub comparison. So Ashley continues, the joke is literally that coy is the word for love, romantic love specifically. Uh, for more casual crushes, you might see ski or daisuki uh, translated as love, but koi is more serious. You'll see I or aishiteru as the verb form for love of all types, but koi or koishiteru is reserved for romance and not familial love. In the dub, the mermaid says she's uh, she's amore. Like, that's amore. Like, um, that would be the Italian word for love. But also sounds close to amore, like an eel. So the pun... <laughs> oh, okay, you're right. You're right. This is a brilliant localization. I love it. Um, so the pun is that Casanova thinks the mermaid is literally saying uh, what a sea creature she is. But actually, she's explaining that she's the object of uh, true lo romantic love and care instead of a sex object. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, sorry if you already had a million other people point this out, but I think this segment is clever while still being simple in comparison to the others. And the localization successfully maintains the spirit of the joke. That is amazing. That is like some big brain shit. And I love it. Uh, you're right. That localization is perfect for capturing that pun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely incredible. So we got a message from uh, Holly, who is talking oh. about Adolescence of mm, Utena, which okay. is the movie. We're not at the movie yet. So Holly, I'm going to hang on to this and we will cover that email once we get to the movie. But just so you know, we did get your email. Uh, the last one that we got is from Morgan, who writes, I've really enjoyed your show. Uh, you've noticed and found meaning in so many things I never did. You examine the idea in episode 33 of thinking about the show's camera as Akio's eyes. Akio seemingly makes an appearance of that very kind all the way back in episode three at around eight minutes when Toga tells the student council she hasn't gotten a letter from the end of the world. The camera is looking down on them from inside the tower above. And while I'm thinking about it, early on, you were wondering about the split arch sometimes seen in the dueling arena. I think I found the answer. If you look at the crenellated wall around the arena, the entrance arch makes a gap in the wall, but the split arch makes no gap. It's a gigantic double structure in the distance far beyond the wall. And it's shown in close-up all the time. It's That's where Toga is watching the duels from. <laughs> I can't believe I've never picked up on that before. Um, it's also the right shape to be the mysterious bell tower, too. And it makes you wonder what the tallest point in Otori really is. And uh, Morgan has included a, uh, a screenshot that I am going to put in the um, in the tweet for this episode where Morgan has uh, like marked off exactly where Toga is in relation to the scene. I love it. I can't believe I never spotted that before. That is perfect. <laughs> so if you have anything that you want to say to us, if you really want to take me to task about my opinions about uh, Toga, please, by all means, write into us at absolutedestinyapodcast at gmail.com 
Or you can start a brigade to harass us on Twitter at Zatai Unme Pod. Please don't actually start a brigade to harass us. <laughs> it's totally a joke. <laughs> you can also find us individually. I'm at Life in Neon. And I'm at Car Cutie. And we will see you next time.